Well, good morning, Mars Hill. How are you? Morning. Good to see you all. Very warm welcome to you, and especially if you're a guest or new here, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors. As always, we'll open with a blessing. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that he may proclaim the excellencies, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. It's who we are, the story of how we as a church in our Christian faith were called out of darkness into the marvelous light is unfolding before us here in our study of Acts. And we are gonna continue that as we just read in verses 12 through 14 of chapter one. Last week, we saw one of the most significant events that has ever happened in the history of everything, which is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ from the Mount of Olives into heaven that the resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords who has defeated death and promised to return again has ascended, as we're later going to learn in the book of Acts, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, which means all power, all authority belong to him. Doesn't matter if you're a king or an emperor or a president or CEO, your power is far below the power that the Lord Jesus has seated next to his Father. And it's that power of Jesus in his mission that we're going to see unfold as the kingdom of God advances throughout the book of Acts. The apostles we also saw last week uh, got a glimpse of heaven. It's why they couldn't stop staring up. They saw something so beautiful, so lovely, so arresting of their attention, so glorious that they couldn't look away. And so it took two men dressed in white, perhaps angels, to tell them, men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? At that moment, they were snapped out of their trance and they obeyed what Jesus told them to do, which was to go back to Jerusalem and to wait there until the promise of the Father would come. The promise of the Father is the reception of the Holy Spirit, which we're gonna see in Acts chapter two. But on their return back to Jerusalem is where we pick up in our text today. So Acts chapter one, verse 12 through 13, let's reread this together. Then they, the 11 apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. If you are unfamiliar with a Sabbath day journey, according to the law, it was approximately like three-fourths of a mile, roughly what I can jog in any given day. Uh, this is not an arbitrary rule. It's 2,000 cubits. Um, I'm not as familiar with cubits, which is why I translated it into miles. And this is supposed to be the length of what the plan for Jerusalem is gonna be. So in other words, on Sabbath, if you were a law-abiding Jew at this time, basically the rule was this. You can go around in Jerusalem, you can go to Jerusalem, but that's it. That's a Sabbath day journey, which tells us the Mount of Olives is close, right? Less than a quarter mile. And when they had entered, in other words, when the apostles had entered Jerusalem, they went up to the, not a, it's important, to the upper room where they were staying. Why is the upper room important? Because the last time we saw the apostles in the upper room, they were with Jesus, breaking bread, celebrating the Passover in anticipation of Christ's crucifixion. A lot has happened since the last time they were in this upper room. 
But I want to situate ourselves in this. I really want us to see the geography. I want us to see the topography. I want us to imagine this short three-quarters of a mile journey. Because Luke is giving us details for a specific reason. There aren't wasted words. There's no wasted ink when it comes to Scripture. If we truly believe it's inspired and inerrant and infallible, which here at Mars Hill, we affirm those things about Scripture, then even this seemingly throwaway comment about how the apostles left the mountain and went back to their upper room has something for us, and indeed it does. So let's situate ourselves here. This, on the screen, is an old map that displays ancient Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, and the Mount of Olives. If we zoom in, we'll see approximately the area that they would have been allowed to walk during that day. That's the Sabbath day journey. On the very far right of this topographic map, which means those little black lines are communicating something about elevation, on the very far right is the Mount of Olives. So that is the location where the 11, the 11 apostles were when Christ ascended. To go back to Jerusalem, which is that pink part on the left side of the map, they would have had to walk down the Mount of Olives and through that red line, which represents the Kidron Valley. Now, Luke doesn't mention the Kidron Valley, but we know it's there. A couple of other things to bear in mind about this three-quarters mile journey is that a little bit down the mountain from the Mount of Olivet would have been Gethsemane. So the apostles, on their descent from Mount of Olives, would have passed the Garden of Gethsemane. They would have come back up the west side of the Kidron Valley through a gate, which at that time was called the Eastern Gate. It's not there today. We don't know approximately, we know approximately where it is, but they would have gone through an Eastern Gate. And then to get to the upper room, they very would have likely had to pass the temple. And so this represents the approximate location of the temple as well. If you've ever been to that part of the world, one of the things that's really shocking and hard to take in is how compact and compressed and close everything is. This is not very far apart. Here's another angle. This is north looking down south, so you get a better idea of this journey. On the left is the peak of the Mount of Olives. Again, that's where Jesus ascended into heaven and where the apostles start their journey here in chapter, in verse 12. They would have went down towards the Kidron Valley, but again, they would have had to pass Gethsemane. This is an important point. Having passed Gethsemane, they would have gone through the Kidron Valley, back up, in through the Eastern Gate, and towards the temple. Another way to look at it is this. This is a photo that was taken from, um, see, the south looking northward. And you'll notice on the very tippy top there of the photo is the Mount of Olives that really deep part where it looks like there's a path, but that's a drainage ditch, is the Kidron Valley. Gethsemane is back there where you can kind of see some of those dark olive trees. And then the temple would have been off to the left. And then one final view. This is a photograph taken from the perspective of the Mount of Olives facing towards Jerusalem. So at the ascension, once the apostles had stopped gazing into heaven and they looked down at Jerusalem, they literally looked down at Jerusalem. This would have been, of course, it would look different, but that's approximately what their view would have been as they started this journey. They would have gone down the mountain, past Gethsemane, up 
up the Kidron Valley through the Eastern Gate and past the temple. Okay, why do I share all of that with you? Is it because I am slowly becoming a grandfather who wants to share his adventures in Lebanon, Indiana with you through a slideshow, right? Anybody have to sit through that? True fact, Lebanon, Indiana is a real place, and I did, in fact, sit through one of the slideshows of my grandfather <laughs> about the family farm or something like that. I don't remember, I was six. Or is it because I'm trying to communicate something that Luke is trying to communicate something to us, right? Yes, it's option B. I don't care about Lebanon, Indiana. The, the option B is this. Luke is different in the fact that he loves facts. He loves eyewitnesses. He loves data. He is, by trade, a physician, which is really cool because in 21st century Western America, these are the kinds of things that we're interested in. We're interested in the facts. We're interested in establishing what is true, right? Almost to a fault, because then we, we kind of inhabit this de-enchanted world where the only thing that is real is the material, the only thing that is real is the facts. Uh, but for Luke, he's telling us these facts because he's watching God orchestrate the most subtle, most whispered, most nuanced blessings that God is giving the early church. There's an incredible point here that if you're aware of the topography, you're aware of the geology, you can't help but notice a connection that Luke is making earlier in the Gospels. Remember, in the Gospel of John, Jesus earnestly prayed for the unity of his disciples. He said in John 17, verse 11 and 22 through 23, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they, the apostles, may be one even as we are one. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. And them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. Jesus is praying three times for the unity of the apostles. And this is a gospel issue, he says. He doesn't want them one just for being one's sake. He says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And immediately, if you remember in the Gospels, after Jesus prays for this unity among the apostles, he leads the apostles out of Jerusalem to go where? To Gethsemane. So he prays for unity with the disciples, says, come on, we're leaving Jerusalem. They leave Jerusalem, they descend the Kidron Valley, they come back up and they go to Gethsemane. And what happens in Gethsemane? You see, the last time the apostles were in Gethsemane, they didn't remain with Jesus. They didn't remain unified with each other. Because once Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, Matthew records, all the disciples left him and fled. They broke up and they ran away from each other. They stopped following Jesus. They ran away out of fear. They were disunified. And it seems like Jesus' prayer went unanswered. Jesus asked the Father, give the apostles unity, just like we have unity. And yet the very next thing we see is them in disunity. 
That's why this part right here in Acts is so important. That when they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day journey, they were together. In other words, the last time the disciples crossed the Kidron Valley, they went to Gethsemane and they scattered in disunity away from Christ. But this time, the disciples are descending the Mount of Olives together and they pass the Garden of Gethsemane together and they enter Jerusalem together. Because as we're soon going to learn, the apostles were of one accord. They were one together, the very thing that Jesus prayed for them. I love it, don't you? Isn't that awesome? And we fail to recognize that if, if we don't you know, think about the things that we think are mundane. I showed you maps, you're like, where are we going with this? But I think like a mini application point here is um, how many times have we looked for encouragement from God and he's given us subtle encouragement and we just ignored it because we're not paying attention or we're forgetful. We don't remember what God has done in our past. We're too ashamed to look at our past to recognize how far we've come. The apostles passed Gethsemane on their way to Jerusalem after the ascension. You, you, you know some of them had to have like done this, right? Because the last time they were there, they fled away from him. But even in that moment, even if they did feel shame, and I hope they didn't, I hope what they recognized the Holy Spirit was teaching them was, hey, you can flee all you want, but you're in my story. And that's not how it's going to end. And it's a testament not to their faithfulness, but to God's faithfulness, to redeem a space that they abandoned at Christ's greatest hour of need. He does that for you. He wants to bless you in reminding you of these things. It's just, are we paying attention? Do we have ears to hear that? Because Jesus is doing something with you, just like he was doing something with these apostles, something new. Specifically, 11 of them. Remember, Judas is out of the picture. Matthias is not yet entered. So there's only 11 apostles still. And Luke wants us to know that. <clears throat> he names them. Read with me verse 13. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, son of James. Who's missing from the list? Judas, right? That's the most obvious thing to us. But here's something that's not so obvious, and I want to bring up real quick and then return to the main point I think Luke's trying to make here. The last time we saw a list of apostles written by Luke was in his gospel in chapter 6, and the list begins with two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. But now, in Acts chapter 1, what has he done with those two sets of brothers? Split them up. It's no longer Peter and Andrew, James, James and John. It's Peter, John, James, and Andrew. Well, why is that? This is just something to, to put down because we're going to pick it back up later in Acts. There are roles developing among the apostles for specific reasons. Peter is becoming a first among equals, not the first, but a first among equals, taking a leadership role. And I think it's because of all the people in that list, he's the last person you want leading, Right? the one that's faithless, the one that Jesus calls Satan, 
the one that steps out in the boat and sinks, the one that denies Christ three times, he's really, he's going to be the one that's a first among equals? Yes, we're going to learn that throughout the book of Acts. But back to the main point. Jesus is doing something new with his apostles. Because, again, the last time we saw them in this area, they scattered out of fear, abandoned Christ in disunity. They bolted at the first sign of trouble. They left Christ. They left each other. They hid out of fear. But throughout Acts and beyond, what we're going to see is them gathering to scatter again, not out of fear this time, but in spite of fear. Not away from Christ, but because of Christ. They're going to remain with each other despite trouble. They're going to proclaim Christ as one body of saints, and they're going to preach in boldness. We don't know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the fate of every single apostle. Some of them do because Scripture records it. There's a lot of tradition, a lot of possibilities about what may have happened to them. And I want to share some of those with you this morning to kind of highlight this point, that in their unity, they would again scatter, not out of fear this time, but out of boldness. According to church tradition, Peter's life would end in Rome after he's crucified upside down because he didn't think it was... an it would have been an honorable thing for him to share in the exact same kind of crucifixion as Jesus. We know from Scripture that John will be exiled to the island of Patmos. And if that sounds like a vacation, it's not. You basically starve to death. James, we learn in Acts chapter 12, will be executed in Jerusalem. Andrew, it said, is crucified in Petrus, which is Western Greece. Philip, it said, was beheaded in Hierapolis, which is in Western Turkey. Thomas potentially made it all the way to India before he was speared to death. Bartholomew was potentially murdered in Armenia. Matthew potentially executed in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was potentially murdered in the Upper Nile Valley. Simon the Zealot, this is crazy, was likely sawed in half. And then Judas, the son of James, was likely murdered in Beirut. It's not just a list of names. This is a list of destinies of men who proclaim the gospel. Right? What changed? <laughs> what changed? Like, how did these guys go from running away from Jesus out of fear to staring death in the eyes and saying, you don't have power over me anymore? What in the world changed? I think the question we're really asking is one that applies to all saints across all time, and it's this. What kind of thing precedes a movement from God that changes people so radically that you have no other explanation for it but God himself? Like, when God is about to move, what are the telltale signs among his people? And what we're learning in Acts chapter 1 is that there are two Verse 14, all of these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I want to talk about that last piece here, because that's important. When I say Jesus is doing something new with his church, I mean it. That last statement seems throwaway to us, but it's not. You can't understand how radical it is for Luke to say, oh yeah, in the earliest stages of the church, the men and women worship together. You know how many Jews at this time, even if they're interested in Christianity, have been like, time out, what? They separated men and women back then. And here Luke says, nope, they were gathered together in the upper room. Oh, and Mary was there too, Jesus' mom, and his brothers. 
Some people would say his brothers are talking about other disciples. I don't think so. I think Luke is including the fact that Jesus's earthly mother and Jesus's earthly stepbrothers are there in the room for this reason. Who knows Jesus the best? Is it the apostles who spent the past three and a half years with him? Or is it the woman that gave birth to him? Is it the brothers that grew up with him? Right? How many of you have older brothers? Anybody have older brothers? I don't. I did the same thing this morning. I keep lying to people. I don't have an older brother. I am an older brother. I have a brother that's 10 years younger than me. And if you were to ask my brother, Aaron, do you believe that your older brother, Kyle, is the Messiah? He would not let you finish a sentence before he said no. Because he grew up with me. He remembers. He remembers, right? But now you have, and if you ask my mom, she loves me, but she's going to say, no, <laughs> don't think so. That's why Luke's including these details. Again, we like facts. We like eyewitnesses. We like corroboration, right? Luke does too. Why are Mary and Jesus' stepbrothers gathering together with the apostles to advance this movement that Jesus, their son or their brother, started? It's because they believed him. They believe him. Okay, so that's the early church. What are they doing? They're together in one accord, and they're in prayer. And these are the things I think are asking the question, like, what precedes a movement of God? And I want to talk about both of these uh, separately. So we're going to ask the first question. What does it mean to be in one accord? Uh, For a church to be in one accord, it's a miracle, right? In fact, I think this is the earliest miracle of the early church, the fact that 11 apostles were together in one accord, right? All right, a week and a half ago, I went up and I did the uh, youth camp and I promised some of them I would squeeze a dad joke into the next sermon. So my debt is paid. What does it mean for the early church to be in one accord or with one accord? Uh, This is really interesting. The word one accord here, super unique, it's homothumidum. It only appears 12 times in the entire New Testament, 10 times in the book of Acts. So this is a very Lucan, a Luke word. It means unipassioned. It means same-willed. It means synced up in desires. And as before, that the early church was homothumidon, that they were in one accord, is actually an answer to prayer from the Son of God to God the Father. Like I... For us to be like, oh, yeah, they were in one accord, which means they agree. That's great. Time out. You don't understand what's going on here. The Son of God prayed to God the Father that this would happen. Right? That's the weight and the severity here. I am no longer in the world, but they're in the world. Jesus prayed to the Father, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one even as we are one. So there's a qualitative statement here. Jesus is not just saying, I would love it for the apostles to be one just for the sake of oneness. I want them to agree just for the sake of of agreeing. Because just because we're unified, let's think about this as a church today. Being unified is not good per se. In other words, there's not a intrinsic goodness of being unified because we could be unified for the wrong reason. We need to be unified in a way like or as, Jesus says, the Son is to the Father and the Father is to the Son. 
So the oneness we receive is not found in each other. It's received as a blessing from the Trinity. That's the source of oneness or unity that the church should desire and the church should receive, a oneness that must be from God and for God. The oneness must not be from us and for us. The oneness must be from God and for God. Now, interestingly, so fascinating to me, when the ancient Jews translated the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, when they translated that into Greek, they used the exact same word that we see here in Acts for in one accord, homothumadon. They used that word specifically in a really famous moment of Israel's history, in Exodus, when they're gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses comes, he says, or the Exodus says in 19.7, Moses called, came and, and called the elders of the people together and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. In other words, they came together, they gathered together, does this sound familiar from Acts? As God's people to receive the covenant of the law of God, the binding power that defines God's relationship with his people. And in receiving that word from God, this is how the people responded. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. When the Jews translated this text into Greek, that word answered together, they chose the same word, one accord you see in Acts, homothumidum. So when the apostles were of one accord, homothumidum, the Jews at Mount Sinai answered together, homothumidum. This is intentional. Luke is trying to make a very subtle but very important point. Israel was at one time in one accord about what? Their faithfulness to God. Yes, God, we all agree to worship you and only you and obey you and live faithfully to you. Question, did they succeed? No. Imagine that you are approaching this biblical story for the very first time. You've read the Gospels. You know all of Israel's story. You have not read Acts. You've not read any of the, apostles, the epistles. You don't know any of that. It's not clear to you, now that you've heard this word again, that it's actually going to work this time. God's people in the Old Testament failed to keep their pledge to God. And now we see an echo a smaller version of this replaying again as a new Israel represented by these 11 men gathering together once more in one accord together. Will it work this time? Is there going to be faithfulness this time? See, God's doing something new with a new people, a holy nation. Think about it. With Israel and their history in the background, as people gathered at Mount Sinai receiving God's law, swore in one accord to be faithful to him. Now there's a new Israel being born. People gathered not at the foot of Mount Sinai, but atop Mount Zion in Jerusalem to receive not the law from God, but to receive God's grace. Because the law has been completed in the Son through his cross and resurrection. And in one accord, they are praying faithfully to him, not necessarily to make promises to God, but to receive God's promises, to receive all of the yeses 
that were ever promised by God in Christ. The yes, I will crush the head of the serpent. The yes, I will establish my covenant with you. The yes, I will give my people a new heart and a new spirit. In fact, that's what's coming up in Acts chapter two, at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Will it work this time? Will God's people succeed this time? That's the major question that's gonna be asked all throughout the story of Acts as it unfolds. And actually, continuing on to this day in this very church with you sitting in this room right now. See, verse 15 tells us approximately how many people were a part of the church at this time. 120. 120. Look around the room. I'm willing to guesstimate there's about 120 people in here. Which means, because if you weren't here for first service, you know there was more than one. This local expression of church in Mobile, Alabama, in the 21st century, on a continent that these people didn't even know existed, <laughs> is approximately the same size as the absolute earliest ancient church, let alone the church universal, let alone the church across all ages. Do we struggle to maintain unity? Yes. What's interesting is so did they. As we uh, look at this young congregation in Acts and as it grows, we're gonna see that they struggle to maintain unity. That James is gonna to have to call a council together to settle a debate about how Gentiles are to be included in the church. Paul's actually gonna to have to confront Peter publicly about his hypocrisy in dealing with Gentiles. Um, friction is gonna get so bad between Paul and another guy named Mark that they're gonna part ways. In fact, Paul is gonna write a letter during this time frame to the church in Corinth, Corinth and say, hey, there's fractions, or fractions, there's factions among you. And there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. So if they sought to be of one accord as a relatively small congregation, how is it that we ought to seek to be of one accord today? Especially in the polarized world that we live in. Would you agree? We're being pulled in all sorts of different directions. Politics, culture, meaning, purpose, value, how do we live, how do we, how do, we do church? All of these things we're, we're, are threatening the unity of the church. Because hear this, if the church began in absolute unity, then utter disunity is the church's end. And the more disunity we see in a church, the more sin we see getting its way. But here's the precious promise that Jesus made, gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The more we see disunity in church and sin getting its way, we actually also see more of God's grace in the harder that the Holy Spirit is working to preserve a remnant. Okay, back to the question. How ought we seek to be of one accord today? If you look throughout scripture, you're gonna get a, a bunch of different answers. Um, what if we sh recognized our new shared identity? And in our new shared identity, we would see that the differences between us are actually not all that important. Definitely gonna see that in Acts, right? All of the nations are coming together. It's not just a Jewish thing anymore, Gentiles are included. It's not just Jews in uh, Jerusalem or Judea. It's also gonna be Samaritans. It's also gonna be Jews from all over the Roman Empire. It's not just men, it's men and women. It's not apostles, it's all people, right? All nations are coming 
to know Jesus through the gospel. It's breaking down a lot of different barriers like that, the barriers that we ex- you know, experience today. Paul says in Ephesians 2.19, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You've got the exact same passport. We're, we're under the same king. And Paul says, members of the same household of God. You are spiritually sons and daughters of the Most High. We're in the same kingdom. We're a part of the same family. Any of the, any of the superficial things that separate us, culture, skin color, even gender, at the end of the day, God saves us all. There is now no distinction between Jew, Gentile, male, and female. All are one in Christ. So that's a good way to seek unity, a biblical way to seek unity. What about agreeing on biblical truth? Yes, that's really super important, right? When it comes to unity in the church, we should all affirm what we agree to be true, what we believe fundamentally and at its core that the gospel message is communicating to us. We share a common covenantal commitment to faith. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, who is that Lord? What is that faith? What is that baptism? Who is that God and Father? We should agree on all of these things, doctrinal unity. That's another way to pursue unity. What about pressing into the ways that make us as saints of God distinct from the world, like our conduct, our speech, our ethic, the way we approach justice and mercy. Yes, of course. We should be lockstep in our missions. We should be lockstep in our pursuit of holiness. We should be in agreement on what the church ought to look like. I didn't pick all of these arbitrarily. These are all issues we're going to see worked out in the book of Acts. We're gonna see all of these things and more but not before we see this one incredibly powerful and essential unifying power. Read again, Acts 1.14. All these were in one accord in devoting themselves to prayer. You want a unified church? Pray. Start there. Some of us might think, oh, if we want a unified church, we gotta nail down our doctrine first. No, pray then nail down your doctrine. But if we want a unified church, we gotta figure out what our mission's supposed to be. No, pray first, then figure out what your mission's gonna be. You know why I know this is true? Because the apostles did not usher themselves into the upper room and go, okay, now that we've seen all this, what is the most proper, biblically-based Christology of the nature of Christ? Is that important? Yes. Neither did the apostles gather in the upper room and say, okay, what kind of missions program are we gonna start at church? Andrew, you need to do the fundraising side of it. Peter, you go see if we can buy some land and build a big ministry center. No. Are those things okay to do? I guess. What is it that they did? They prayed, they prayed, they prayed. This is the power that unifies the church. And this isn't a testament to the faithfulness of the apostles. Because remember, who was it that asked for the apostles to be unified in the first place? It was Jesus. So the fact that the apostles are of one accord is not a testament to their faithfulness. It's actually a testament of Jesus' faithfulness to the apostles. 
The first time we ever see these men in Luke's writings was actually Luke chapter six. And before Jesus even calls the apostles, he's praying over them. He's praying for them. And now, the first time we see the apostles together without Jesus, they're devoting themselves to prayer. That's something that Jesus did. They didn't do that. Jesus did that because Jesus made prayer a priority. And his prayer for the apostles was that they would seek unity and that they would enjoy the blessing of unity. The son asked the father, would you please make the apostles unified like we are? And the father said, yes. He answered that prayer affirmatively. And so it is with us. Jesus makes prayer a priority for his church today. It's not like Jesus just prayed that the early church would be unified. And then he's like, all right, let's see what happens when I come back. Y'all better be unified. He continually mediates and prays on our behalf that we would seek unity. And the Father continually and always will respond to the Son in heaven, yes, I desire that your church would be unified on earth. That's not the question. The question is this, do we desire the same thing? Do we desire that the yes for our unity in heaven would overpower all of our no's that cause disunity on earth? In other words, do we desire for things to be on earth as they are in heaven? Sound familiar? It should, because that's at the dead center of the Lord's prayer. The dead center of the Lord's prayer. When I read this text, I, man, all the apostles went up into the upper room and they were praying together, unified in their will. First thing I thought was like, oh, to be a fly on the wall in that room. What were they praying about? What did they say? We could speculate all day long. Surely there was Thanksgiving. Surely they were praying through the Psalms, which is a really common practice then. I wonder too, maybe if they weren't even praying through some of the prophets, especially like Joel 2, that promised that the Holy Spirit would come. But I honestly think that one of the things the apostles did was prayed through the way the Lord Jesus taught them to pray. And the reason I think that is this. At the center of the Lord's prayer is that things on earth would be the way that they just that 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 they are in heaven. And what did the apostles just see on the top of Mount of Olives? They were looking up into heaven. They could see the Son seated at the right hand of the Father that overwhelmingly overpowered vision of beauty and grandeur and holiness and grace and mercy and love. They couldn't turn their eyes away until two men had to break their trance. They just saw heaven. How could they not want it on earth? And for them to go back into the upper room and pray, I think that's what they're praying. Father, let what we saw in heaven be here on earth. And in doing so, would they not have been reminded of the way that the Lord taught them to pray? And if they were praying the way that the Lord taught them to pray, then we have a pretty good idea of the things that they were praying for. 
I went back through the Gospels, and I, I, I tried to discern every single time that Jesus explicitly taught the apostles how to pray. In other words, if the apostles are praying in the upper room, they're doing it together, and they're, they're drawing on all of the teachings of Jesus that we are aware of, then what is it, how is it that Jesus taught the apostles to pray explicitly? And what's fascinating is if you do that short study, one of the things you notice is that every single time Jesus explicitly teaches the apostles to pray in a certain way, it has some kind of connection to the Lord's Prayer, with one exception. One exception. Let me demonstrate this for us. Jesus taught his followers to pray like this. We all know it. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. A kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is not some kind of rote, magical formula that you say over and over and over again. Jesus says, don't pray like that. That's how the hypocrites pray. This is a framework, a skeleton upon which you, you build kind of the flesh of your prayer. And every single element, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your will be done, give us bread, forgive us our debt. All of these things Jesus elsewhere in the gospels told the apostles explicitly to pray about. Think about it. Um, the apostles would have prayed, your will be done, demonstrated by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying to his father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for the second time, Jesus went and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That is awesome because it teaches us something. Jesus is not asking us to pray for something or pray in a way that he wasn't willing to pray himself. He's been there. When you have to confess something that you really don't want to do, or you really don't want to happen, or you really don't want to go through with it, and you say, you know what, nevertheless, my will, not, not, not my will, but your will be done. And there's a little bit of you in the, in the back of your head says, yeah, but that's like a kappa, isn't it? No, because Jesus was right where you were too. Uh, another, another thing, Jesus uh, teaches them, give us this day our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. And explicitly, he teaches in Mark eleven twenty four about our material needs. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. He taught them in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Just as Jesus showed them on the cross in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them so they, do not, they don't know what they do. And then he taught his apostles, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Everything in the Lord's Prayer has some kind of touchstone or connection point throughout the rest of the uh, Gospels that the apostles were taught to pray. But to what end? The end is for the glory of God, to see the intersection of heaven and earth as wills and desires align between heaven and earth, as God's activity becomes our activity, as the Gospel moves forward, the kingdom advances. Because another thing that Jesus taught his apostles to pray that's not present in the Lord's Prayer but is in his explicit teaching about prayer is this. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What do you think they were praying about in that upper room? 
Lord, the harvest is plentiful. We've seen heaven. We want it on earth. Here we are. Send us. Let it be us. In fact, I don't wonder if it's not a good personal practice of ours if when you're reciting the Lord's Prayer to tag on the end, here I am, Lord, send me. And this is where I'd like us to close this part of our morning, contemplating briefly on what the Lord's Prayer is communicating to us, praying it together and continuing to worship in song. Here's a short version of the Lord's Prayer, one I'm teaching my kid right now. Say it like this, our, our Father in heaven, what does that mean? Your heavenly Father is unlike any other earthly father. Even the best earthly dad that's ever lived pales in comparison to the one you have in heaven. May your name be holy. This is what it means to bear God's name well. We're forbidden from, bearing, from taking the name of God in vain. That's less about what you're saying and more about how you're living. God gives you his name by faith, and we have the privilege of taking his name and making it known and making it holy in the world. May your kingdom come. Evangelism, missions, the gospel. What's my role in pressing forward the frontier of the kingdom of God? May your will be done, not my will, not our will collectively, but your will through the activity that you let us in on. And here is the hinge that this entire prayer hangs on, on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see what happens in heaven happen here on earth. Collapse those two. Not so that there's a blend of them, but that heaven completely consumes earth and makes all things new. Give us our bread. Forgive us our sins. This is super important. Super, super important. Something I think we walk past really easily. True or false? According to the Lord's Prayer, you are supposed to grovel before God that he would forgive your sins before you can ask him for your daily provision. True or false? False. It's uncomfortable to say, isn't it? Because we've got a jacked up view of God. Sin has jacked our view of God up. God is a giver. He's not interested in hearing your confession of sin until you have asked provision from him. Because he will not forgive your sin until he first gives us the provision of the bread of heaven, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. How many of us asked for Jesus before God gave him to us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now that he has provided for us, we may receive forgiveness. Super, super important. And it's also a source of assurance. Has God provided everybody in this room your daily bread today so far? then that means he will also provide for you forgiveness. Don't lead us into trials. Deliver us from evil. But will you go through trials? And will you encounter evil? This is a part of the prayer that God says, I will honor it, but sometimes I will be with you in them. And why it's so important that, but nevertheless, thy will, not mine, be done, is not a cop-out. It's a comfort, knowing that his rod and his staff comfort us. 
And in the end, because of God's goodness to provide for us, to forgive us, to be with us in trials, and because he is holy, and because he's the king of kings, and because his will is good, here I am, Lord, send me. As a church, let's pray this together, and we'll immediately go into song. Does that sound good? Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, may your name be holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us bread. Forgive us our sins. Don't lead us into trials. Deliver us from evil. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Amen and amen.